Christian, I'm going to tell you a funny story about a movie review that I did last week. Do you remember No Good Deed? No Good Deed. The movie that they scheduled a screening for and then canceled it? Of course. Okay. Gosh, of course I don't remember it because they canceled it when we were supposed to be going there. That's why we didn't review it on this podcast, but I did have to review it for Newsday. And so I went on a Friday, saw the movie. Reviewed it. It's horrible. Just pathetic, pathetic <laughs> film. That's why they canceled it probably. Well, though, you remember right? the, the reason that they gave was because it had this massive plot twist that they didn't want to have it leak out. They wanted to make sure that nobody spoiled the plot twist. So I wrote this review and um, tried to give people a sense of how stupid the plot twist was <laughs> without spoiling it. And I said um, it's about my, – my, my quote, my, what my words were something like, it's about as fiendishly clever as an episode of General Hospital. <laughs> So, lo and behold, on Twitter, I see, I, uh, I see this tweet from someone uh, directed not at me but at someone else saying, someone has besmirched your work and a link to my review. And then I get a link from that guy. Then I get a tweet from that guy that says, so, in other words, very fiendishly clever, eh? And I'm thinking, what's what? going on here? What's going on here? The guy is a writer for General Hospital. Oh, awesome. It was awesome. And he, he had a great sense of humor about it. I, you know, I tweeted him back and said, you know, geez, can't anybody make a snide remark anymore without having to take personal responsibility for it? <laughs> he said, no, that's fine. He said, just next time, use The Young and the Restless. He, <laughs> he was totally cool about it. Um, in fact, I'm going to give a shout out to him. His name is Ron Carlevati. He had a great sense of humor about it. I am now a follower of his on Twitter. So, uh, but the reason, Ron, yeah. So, and also imagine how fun it would be to be a writer for General Hospital. What an awesome job, right? Gosh, how many times are you going to have the evil twin come back (laughs) after pretending to be dead? So many times. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is because it's a good lesson in personal responsibility. And I think that's a little bit of a theme here in some of the movies that we're about to talk uh, about this week on Movie Date. Personal responsibility. Taking personal responsibility for your actions, don't you think? I'm curious about this thesis of yours. I I have a theory. Uh, We're going to be talking about This Is Where I Leave You, the dysfunctional family comedy with a star-studded cast, Tusk, the new horror film with Kevin Smith, Walk Among the Tombstones with Liam Neeson, and The Maze Runner. Maze Runner. All coming up, but first let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway, and this is Movie Date. All right, Rafer. Let's start with a movie that listeners know I was looking forward to this fall. This is where I leave you. I had this on my fall movies to look out for list. You were very excited about this because you were a fan of the book. I love the book by Jonathan Tropper, and I think the cast is incredible. It includes Jason Bateman, Tina Fey, Adam Driver, the great Jane Fonda, Connie Britton, Rose Byrne. They all play members and friends of the Altman family who are reuniting to sit Shiva for their recently deceased father, Here's a clip. Hari said you came alone. What happened to Quinn? You didn't split up, did you? Mm-mm. Oh, That's I'm sorry. I don't know why I Freak accent on the elliptical strings. Goddamn but... antidepressants I'm yeah. on. You know, they just yeah. obliterate whatever filter I have. Mm-hmm. That's very embarrassing. She left me. I That's... knew it. I totally ah. knew that. I'm sorry, but she I She slept vibe. with my boss, so. Well, that'll do it. Yes, it did. 
That's Jason Bateman, who's one of the adult Altman kids, talking with an old friend about his wife's cheating. We also learn that sister Tina Fey is married to a man who ignores her, and brother Adam Driver is a man-child. We see that everyone in this family is a mess, and maybe they don't even like each other very much. Right. <laughs> Rafer, what did you think of this? Well, um, I this is not the most original material, I have to say. The dysfunctional family all gathering together under one roof, uh, you know, sitting shiva. I do think it's kind of funny that the family is not even really that Jewish. But uh, Dad was half Jewish but completely atheist, they right, say. <laughs> right. Um, and now they're sort of stuck under one roof for seven days. You know... I feel like we have seen this kind of material really countless, cabillions, gazillions of times. But I think what makes this movie work is the cast. It is just a dream cast, and they are all playing exactly the kind of roles that they were born to play, really especially starting with Jason Bateman, who – I mean, I – when you look he's at Jason Bateman, he's always the beleaguered, responsible he's, son. Well, he's, and he always he's, has to be. What I like about him is he's 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 the doormat who's also angry about it, and I love that. I think that's a really great character and a really versatile persona because you could do comedy with that, you could do drama with that, and here he gets to do a little bit of both, and he's great. But I mean, Tina Fey is just fantastic as this character. Adam Driver is wonderful. He really gets to like cut loose. He's very physical, energetic, a lot of fun, sort of dopey, sort of smart. Um, Corey Stoll, who plays the hard-headed Altman brother, um, everybody's great. And I think that's really what makes the magic in this movie happen. I think the cast is unbelievable. Unfortunately, I didn't love this movie, though. Really? Yeah. And, and, I, I, and maybe it's the fault of the book because I read the book first. But okay. I felt that a lot of the characters just felt like shorthand descriptions rather than fully formed characters in this mm-hmm. movie. And we didn't see all the complexities. We didn't understand. I have to say Tina Fey's character in particular, I didn't fully understand what they were doing with her in this movie. She kind of has a crush on the guy across the, the guy street. The guy across the street, right. And her husband kind of ignores her, but we don't really even see his face for most of the movie. Right. Well, he's a very, very minor character, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I felt I wanted her character to be more fully formed. I wanted I wanted uh, Jason Bateman's character even to be more fully formed. And hmm. uh, so I, I just wanted it to be... And and I don't normally say this. I even would have let the movie be a little bit longer to see the characters more fully developed. I think there's just only so much you can do. I mean, you've got really 11 principal characters in this film. And there's just only so much you're going to be able to squeeze into one movie. Um, You know, I, I thought Jonathan Tropper, the guy who wrote the novel, also wrote the screenplay. And I thought he did a pretty good job of squeezing that all down you're going to have to make some sacrifices. And I think the Wendy Altman character gets short shrift. So does Corey Stoll's character a little bit. Um, I think some of the subplots could have been actually less developed or gotten rid of. Frankly, uh, Connie Britton's character, I felt, just didn't need to be in there yeah, at all. Yeah. Um, you know, so you got to juggle all this kind of stuff. I, But I just felt like this was like a light, fluffy version of the corrections, you know, with no, with none of the, none of the larger statements about America and none of the actual existential dread, just sort of a, you know, oh, it's bro and sis and mom again, and we're all going to have our own little, our little epiphanies and come to some realizations. And in the end, we're all just family. And I think it's light and there's not much there there, but I think it's a great cast, a lot of fun, and some very funny moments. And I, frankly, kind of enjoyed it. Even though I thought it was sort of a pandering, dysfunctional family <laughs> comedy, I kind of went with it. I was happy to be there. I, I thought, uh, you know, this is where I leave you, I thought was a pretty good date. 
you know, I have to say, this is where I leave you. When it was over with, I thought, this is why I left you. Really? No kidding. It, I don't want to say this was an awful movie. It just was not a great date for me. Huh. It was a very so-so date. It wasn't offensive. It wasn't exciting. It just kind of flatlined for me. Interesting. Okay. Let's move on to a completely different kind of movie. Uh, I'm going to tell you, Kristen, about a new horror film called Tusk. Now, I don't think... Is this about elephants? Uh, no. I'll tell you what it's about. Um, you really should have seen this because it's about a podcaster. Oh, Just, I'm a podcaster you're and you're a podcaster, podcaster too. Right. We're Although both podcasters. You'll be glad uh, that neither one of us has, has been this podcaster. Uh, he's played by Justin Long and his name is Wallace. Um, he's the host of kind of a snark, one of these snarky, almost shock jockey kinds of podcasts where the, basically what they do is they make fun of dumb people that they find on the internet, you know, guys who have cut their own legs off accidentally. Um, you know, they, they just snarky, stupid humor. He's out looking for material uh, in rural Canada of all places, and he finds this strange old uh, seafarer, an old mariner of sorts named Howard Howe. And the guy seems to be a goldmine of stories and eccentricities. And uh, Wallace is uh, very happy to meet this guy, except it turns out that Howard is insane, and he is actually a psychopath, and his goal is to surgically transform Wallace into a walrus, and that's what he's going to do in this film, I kid you not. So, let's take a listen. Welcome to Canada. New Jersey, eh? Yeah, years back now, it's uh, Los Angeles. A man torn betwixt devils and kings. Oh! Hockey. Yeah, you're damn right, hockey. Hmm. Don't really follow hockey. Okay. Hands off the counter, please. <laughs> Ray, okay. Raver. Yes? You wanted me to see this? Look, here. there's a couple reasons to see this. Um, well, there's a couple reasons that you might be interested in this. Let's put it that way. One is, uh, it's about a podcaster. Two, it's the return of Kevin Smith, the filmmaker from the 90s who did Clerks and Chasing Amy. You know I don't like him, though. We've discussed this. You know, I don't really like his movies, but I, Kevin Smith, to me, is always going to be a little bit of a hero because he rose out of the 1990s, which was this jaded, apathetic, too cool, super bored, uh, countercultural era that... Kevin Smith kind of defied the odds. He got off off his butt and he made a bunch of movies. And I always thought, well, that's great. And I'm not a fan of those movies and they're kind of irritating. But you did them, man. You did them and you did you them did your it. way. You know what I mean? And I think you that's cool. You went out there and you made those bad movies. Well, you just but, went out there and you did but, it. You know, but anyway. So, and he, you know, Kevin Smith has been kind of gone from the scene for a while. And here he returns with this weirdo, weirdo horror film. And it's kind of a comedy, kind of a horror film, kind of a drama. Uh, the other thing that I think is going to get people's interest and the other reason why I think this film is actually in the multiplexes is because it also stars Johnny Depp as uh, a – and he's that. Yeah. Well, no one knows that because he's uncredited in the movie, although it's a rather major part. And he is in his classic Johnny Depp mode. He's covered in strange makeup. He's got a weird voice. He's doing this kind of weird comic routine as a Canadian detective named Guy Lapointe. And <laughs> – he just – he goes with a gusto. He's unrecognizable. If you didn't know who it was, you'd be thinking, is that John Malkovich or is that – who is that playing that character? Um, it's kind of funny. I think what's weird about this movie 
everything. Is just kind of everything. <laughs> Haley Joel Osment is in it. Uh, Genesis Rodriguez is in it. It's just that the premise is really weird and it doesn't make sense. It's kind of funny, kind of scary. There's a lot of culture. There's a lot of humor about Canadians that doesn't really belong in there. And then you've got Johnny Depp sort of making this freaky cameo appearance as this weirdo caricature of some sort. And I can't figure it out. And I couldn't really figure it out until I found out, and you will find this out if you stay till the end of the film, that this is inspired by a kind of joke that happened on Kevin Smith's own podcast. And so he decided to make a movie about it. I think it probably is funnier and more interesting to Kevin Smith than to anybody else. But again, I just kind of feel like, well, you go, man. You made that movie. Does that mean it's a good date? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not a good date. It's actually, it's actually pretty bad. And it has a lot of the things that I don't like about Kevin Smith's movies in it, which is um, the kind of overwrought, the overwrought drama, the histrionics. He takes things mm-hmm. a little too seriously. Um, no, it's not a very good date. Tusk is not a very good date. But <laughs> I, I, I just, I'm glad that Kevin Smith is back in action. You know, that's that's about the highest praise I can give it. Mm. All right, Rafer. Let, let's talk about another movie called A Walk Among the Tombstones. So, A Walk Among the Tombstones brings us back into the dirty, dark underworld of. Liam Neeson as an aging cop who wanted to leave the game, but is dragged back in. We've seen this before. We have. (laughs) So this time he's dragged back in by a drug lord whose wife has recently been abducted and killed. And Liam Neeson says, I'm going to help find who did this to your wife. But then along the way, he finds other women who've been abducted and tortured and taken and, oh, taken. Taken. And then others, and then others. All of this takes place in Brooklyn in the late 1990s, right before Y2K. Here's a clip. I can't let you leave here. They'll kill me if I do. Who's they, Jones? The other two. So what? You're going to stab me now with that big knife? It's going to bother me, too, for a long time. I know it will. How much is it going to bother you? I take that knife away and stick it in your neck. Knife in the neck. <laughs> He's good at that. Uh, the character is Matthew Scudder. Um, if One you're... of many novels by the what's his name? Lawrence Block. That's he's right. a, he's That's a right. genre genre fiction machine. Lawrence Block is Hasn't one of he those. Like written like a hundred books or something crazy at, like that. At, when I when I went to Wikipedia, him I found about eighty, um, and and many of those are under pseudonyms. Uh, so he's one of those guys. Like Stephen King is like, oh, I'm writing so much, I got to think of other names for my novels. <laughs> um, so he's one of those guys, and Matthew Scudder is one of his more. Uh, popular characters. So I think if you're a Lawrence Block fan, you're probably excited by this. Um, be that as it may, what do you think? How, were you were you interested in this character? So I've never read those books. I only know a little tiny bit about the backstory. But um, so I went in fresh. And I think going in fresh can be a good thing, as we learned sure. earlier from talking about uh, this is where I leave you. Maybe I should have gone in fresh for that. Uh, here's the deal with this movie. It's un- unbelievably violent and dark. Yeah. And um, gruesome and sadistic. And that was hard to watch sometimes. Yeah. Like nightmarish, like violence against women in yes. particular. Scary. And so that was tough. But something I liked about the movie was I liked the gray areas between who's good, who's bad. We have Dan Stevens playing a drug lord and Liam Neeson helping him. And you know, drug lords aren't nice people, really. But. 
he loves his wife, and then he's got this brother who's who's a heroin addict. Yeah, and it's just yeah, it's very bad. What's but the gray also, area? Also, where's the gray area? I don't see that. My problem with this film is there's no gray area at all. Everyone's just crappy. Everyone, I, even Liam Neeson. Liam what's Neeson's... so great about Liam Neeson? This is what I couldn't figure out with the movie. I just kept thinking, why am I watching this cop? opt he's not he's not dragged into it he just he voluntarily goes in for it to be a an unlicensed an unlicensed private investigator. I, I do favors for friends that's what he says you know i do favors and sometimes my friends give me gifts which sounds like a sleazy job to be in in the first place <laughs> and so here one of his friends quote unquote is this drug dealer who he's never met before i'm gonna go find who slaughtered your wife and then what bring those two guys back to you so you can slaughter them who how am I supposed to get behind this? Who who cares about this wealthy drug dealer? And I'm sorry about his wife, but I mean, if you're the wife of a drug dealer, what do you think you're getting yourself in for? That's what you get for marrying a drug dealer. Well, I just mean, come on. Where Where's the good guy in this film? And, and I, by the end of the film... I didn't give a crap what happened to Liam Neeson or anybody. I didn't care. I didn't care if they all got slaughtered. Who didn't, cares? Didn't you see the allusions to 9-11 in the movie, though? Yeah, what that's doing in there, I have no, no idea. I think what it's saying is after 9-11, we had distinctive good guys and bad guys. And this is before all that. I, I don't get, I don't all right, get okay, that at all. You know what? Maybe... <laughs> Maybe I'm overreaching here, but I think that it's not as bad as you think it is. I, don't I think thought it's... it was abysmal. I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, and he, and the other thing that cracked me up was this movie had the nerve to try to be endearing by bringing in the young sidekick played by uh, Brian oh, Astro Bradley. Yes. He plays TJ. He's a great kid, though. He's not a great kid. He's I found him. I found kid. him a irritating yeah. and b depressing. He's a homeless teenager with sickle cell anemia. I'm like, I'm like, what? <laughs> Is this movie going to give me anybody that I can that I can care about? Here's this obnoxious homeless teenager who seems to be fated for death. I what what is this movie trying to do? Oh, Rafer. I so, thought it was. I thought okay, Walk Among the Tombstones. A terrible date. You terrible. Know what? I thought a Walk Among the Tombstones was not as bad a date as you thought it was. I, I, That's like I strange said, to dark, me. Sadistic. A lot of problems here, but I, I was entertained some of the time. Really, some okay. of the time. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know what to say. I, I could have used a lot less of the uh, titillation scenes of, you know, women being terrorized and chopped into pieces. That's just, that's just that's me. That's just you. You're just like that, Rafer. <laughs> You're just like that. All right. Well, stay with us because in just a moment, we're going to review The Maze Runner and we're going to talk with Simon Pegg about his new movie, Hector and the Search for Happiness. I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Rafer Guzman. And this is Movie Date. Rafer, let's talk about Maze Runner. The Maze Runner. Kristen, this is yet another young adult dystopian science fiction <laughs> set in the future movie. Uh, you love these. You, you wish know? we had 10 more of them a year. Because <laughs> 10 a year isn't enough. Why can't we have 20 a year? <laughs> I know. At this rate, uh, it's you know between these and the superhero movies, uh, things are getting to seem a little... Uh, not not a lot of variation in Hollywood these days, but uh, the Maze Runner also based on another young adult novel, a trilogy, I think. Um, so here you've got a young boy named Thomas. He wakes up in the middle of a rather pleasant meadow, uh, but he has no memory of how he got there. Uh, all the other boys around him are in the same boat, and uh, they're trying to get out, but they yes, can't. All teenage boys. All teenage boys. It's an all male society. They're trying to get out, but they can't because they're surrounded by a giant concrete maze, and uh, there are some boys who have been 
been designated as runners who are trying to map that maze and find their way out. But the walls shift around each night, and also it's patrolled by a bunch of... uh, I guess you'd call them sort of spider robot creature type. Giant ones. Yeah, very giant. They're called grievers. They're kind of they're kind of robots, but kind of alive. Anyway, here's a clip. This is all we got. What's out there? You only have three rules. First, do your part. Second, never harm another glader. Most importantly, never go beyond those walls. Oh, I'm sorry. I think oh, I fell asleep there. You didn't like it. You didn't oh, like it, Kristen. No, too no. guy for you? Too male for you? you know, what is it? It has the Smurfs problem. I call it the Smurfs issue, where you have an all-male cast, an all-male world. Actually, that's most of the movies this week. It's it's an all-male yeah. world where suddenly there's one female in there, and all I can think about poor Smurfette being brought into the movie yep. is you're going to get gang-raped any second now. I have to say that does occur to me uh, when uh, I think her name is Kaya Scodelario is yeah. the actress who plays Teresa. She's the one girl who's thrown into uh, this the gl- all teenage boy society where all these boys are kind of full of rage and anger and they kind of beat each other up. But... Um, the all-male society seems to function quite well. It's almost like Thomas More's utopia, right? They've got everyone's been designated to be like either a farmer or a builder or a runner or whatever. Everyone's everyone has their place. Um, but um, I actually thought this was for its genre pretty good. I thought it was pretty well crafted, and I think the visuals are terrific. I think the maze looks fantastic. Um, oh, I have to disagree with you. I've oh, seen really? better visuals in video games. You didn't like the maze? No, I thought the. Ugh. No, I thought the maze looked really hokey. I thought the huh. monster spider robots looked a little bit. Mm. I mean, they. I you know, uh, part of this stuff is you know here the here are the things that boys like. They like they like hierarchy. They like taxonomy, and they like um, mechanical things. And this movie has all of that. You know, and, the, and apparently they don't like girls at all, which is not true. Boys like girls. Boys, well, a lot of boys do like girls later. But, they, but they, at this age, I don't think they're that interested in girls. I think they're much more interested in, like, maze walls flipping around in cool ways. Oh, God. But and I, it's not that cool how the walls are flipping around. And and the movie doesn't actually have that many exciting things happening. Like, oh, sure, the maze has walls that move. And, yes, there's these giant spiders. But I feel like a lot of the movie, we're just waiting for something to happen. We're waiting to find out why they're in the maze. We're waiting for something to happen. We're waiting to find out who put them here. And... Then <laughs> I, I don't want to give a spoiler. I'm afraid well, of giving this one. But but then what it really comes down to is like, yep, there they are. Well, no, there, I mean, there's. I mean, I guess I'd say this. There's a whole larger backstory, and of course, there's going to be a sequel. This is definitely one of those things where you where it's the it's the premise that matters the most. Um, you know, the what am I trying to say? The puzzle is far more fun than the solution in this movie. The, 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 the answers that you get, much, much like Lost, they're just, it's just not going to be— It reminded it's not me of be, Lost. Oh, it's, it's clearly trying to be a kind of Lost. Um, and, you know, the answers that you get are going to be kind of, eh, not, not that great. But no, it's it the does... situation that's fun to be in. And, and I thought for that, for, for what it was, I thought it worked pretty well for this, for this kind of genre. And I think, you know, it's kind of nice to see sort of a boy-oriented uh, teen dystopia. No, 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 no. Because all that's because you're a girl. Leads, no, all the movies with female leads still have tons of boys in them. 
All of them do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ro- yeah, romantic interests to battle over the one female lead. No, She's my girlfriend. She's not, my girlfriend. No, you don't just kiss but those I'm cuter. boys. You also fight them and sometimes kill them. And yeah, in this movie, well. they're just... You have one girl and a hundred boys. Come I think on. we're gonna. I think when the seat when the inevitable sequels come out, I think clearly it seems that we're gonna have a whole, probably a whole new cast of characters and probably a much bigger part for um, that one actress. Mm-hmm. So I think there will be more to the story going forward. But the Maze Runner, I thought was fine, perfectly fine date. Probably more fine if you're twelve years old and male. The Maze Runner. Bad date for me. Wow, bad, bad, bad date. Bad date. It's a lot of slow moving parts followed slow by. Slow moving parts? Uh-huh. A lot of slow moving parts followed by boom, boom, boom. And that's it. <laughs> All right, let's move on to, to an actor that we both like quite a bit Simon Pegg. Yeah. Simon Pegg stars in a new movie this week called Hector and the Search for Happiness. Hector is a psychiatrist with a great girlfriend, a great apartment, and scores of patients who are so loyal to him. But Something is missing. And so he goes off on a trip around the world in search for what that is. Simon Pegg and I sat down this week to talk about the film, about happiness, and about how he prepared for the role. I met with a bunch of psychiatrists. You know, I kind of like, I had um, dinner, social uh, sort of interactions with psychiatrists, uh, which I felt was more, I could possibly get more out of them than if I was lying on a couch, you know, because they wouldn't have to be so psychiatristy <laughs> so it was interesting to sort of get an idea of of what they felt their position was as you know as medical practitioners and and what they thought their profession meant and you know because Hector's a little bit confused because he doesn't seem to be making his patients any happier he doesn't really respect their problems in a way because they seem so facile in comparison to you know what real problems people have around the world and um he's just a little confused so he, he decides to kind of take off on this the search. Let's talk a little bit about those problems that you're saying Hector doesn't necessarily respect. Um, we sometimes call those first world problems. Yeah, it's true. And I, but I think sometimes there's a, a dictum in the film which says, um, you know, happiness is not about drawing comparisons or, or drawing comparisons can make you unhappy. There will always be someone with worse problems than you, but that's not to say that your problems aren't in some way important to you, you know. And um, there is a particular malaise in modern living when you live in an affluent society whereby you have so much choice and safety and relative ease in your life. You lose sight of what happiness is because you have nothing to compare it to. You have a kind of monotone emotional state, you know, whereby everything is just comfortable. And true happiness exists in chaos. It exists in a a place of uncertainty. It It exists more keenly in places of difficulty, which is something we learned and Hector sees as well going to South Africa, to Johannesburg and into the townships of Soweto and saw probably more smiles and laughter there than I've seen in, you know, London or Beverly Hills. And that's not to say that they're happier or more comfortable. They're probably not. They're probably their lives are probably more dangerous and more risky. But because they have the entire emotional spectrum, they understand what happiness is far better than people whose lives are just sort of bland and comfortable. So do you think that that's the lesson that the film is trying to teach us, that the search for happiness is really about experiencing everything, or is there some other takeaway as far as how we can become more happy? No, I think uh, there's lots to take away, but I think that's a key one. I think there's a, there are lots of dictums in the film that appear along the bottom as captions, and they range from sort of you know hallmark platitudes to actually genuinely philosophically 
weighty stuff. And I think one of the most important ones for me is avoiding unhappiness is not the road to happiness. And that's a key uh, factor, I think, in, in the notion of happiness in that it is part of a continuum. It exists alongside all the other emotions. And if you want the rainbow, you have to have every color in it. You know, you have to have the blue as well as the yellow and all that lies in between. And I think it's uh, it's a key thing to embrace happiness as a as a system it's not as a destination you know i mean to use the rainbow uh sort of analogy again if you chase a rainbow you'll never get to it but if you learn to enjoy sort of running (laughs) chasing (laughs) you might achieve happiness happiness is something we experience as a side effect of doing other things of dancing or, or 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 you know swimming or whatever or cycling reading it's it's something that can that can it's almost like a byproduct you know so is your definition of happiness different now than before you started making Hector? I think it's a, I have a clear idea of what happiness is. Hector is the story of a man, but it's told from the point of view of a small child. And that child is Hector's sort of inner child, which is a, a, an important part of our emotional makeup that we need to maintain contact with at all times because we have a very pure view of happiness as children. It's unadulterated by cynicism and by experience and by the burdens of being a grown-up you know, mortality, taxes, all that kind of stuff that weighs us down as we get older. There's a, we have a very pure way of looking at the world when we're kids. And if we can somehow keep a line to that and, and try and view things through the prism of being a child, it can help you unlock elements of your happiness. You know, like I always try and regard my job, which is a lot of fun, as I would if I was seven. You know, when I got the role in Star Trek, I thought, God, what would my seven-year-old self think? of this, he would be absolutely apoplectic <laughs> with joy, you know. Screaming and jumping up and down. Yeah, so I think the key is to kind of almost achieve a sort of vicarious happiness through yourself, through your childhood self by trying to maintain that perspective. And it's um, it's an interesting way. Also, just being kind. Kindness is a direct route to happiness, you know, because you can make other people happy and in doing so you make yourself happy and they become happy and they want to make other people happy and it's a sort of, you know, one begets the other. Um, tolerance, love, all these things are really, really important in creating happiness. And it's strange that we're, we're part way into the 21st century and we seem to be more unhappy than we've ever been as a species. You know, it's, there's more unrest, more intolerance, more hate knocking around. It's, it's, it's depressing. I mean, we need to engender in our children direct interaction with other people. In, interacting with strangers can actually create happiness you know if you're in an elevator and it's really silent say something to the person in there you'd be surprised how they will respond you know it's um it's important the the more insular we become the more we look at our phones all the time text each other rather than talk to each other we're we're shying away from interaction and interaction can create goodwill and goodwill can create happiness now I can't help but notice, though, a lot of the characters in your movies aren't altogether happy. We have (laughs) alcoholics. We have a lot of people who are going through breakups or who are sad about being single or who are messed up in other ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do do you think unhappy characters are more entertaining than happy characters? Well, they certainly have a journey to go on if they're unhappy. You know, if they have already reached a personal happiness and have, have, have transcended all the kind of challenges in their life, then they don't really have anywhere to go as characters. They're kind of settled. And might be seen as a little bit boring if they, you know, the, 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 the very least you should give a character a challenge. But it's great to start off a story with a character who is in flux. You know, the beginning of the book, uh, Hector and the Search for Happiness, starts 
once upon a time there was a psychiatrist called Hector and he was very dissatisfied with his life. What we did with the film was change that to he was very satisfied with his life. So we set up a moment of denial when, you know, prior to him having this realisation that he was unhappy. And in that gave him somewhere to go. And um, and so, yeah, when you're dealing with a character and a narrative, it's always great to give them an arc. And that arc will invariably start with a problem or a challenge or a call to arms. And it will go through a journey of some kind and, uh, you know, some sort of um, task to be fulfilled and come to some kind of resolution at the end. That's kind of the basic story arc of a lot of films and uh plays and books and what have you. So, yeah, I think unhappy characters are always a bit more interesting. That's Simon Pegg, star of many great films, including Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, and the new film Hector and the Search for Happiness. Kristen, it's time to go, but before we do, let's get to trivia. All right. Last week, in honor of Dolphin Tale 2, a movie which neither of us recommends. (laughs) Surprisingly. (laughs) Stunner. Stunner on that one. We asked about another movie where a marine mammal is at the center of things. We played this clip. I come from a long line of chiefs stretching all the way back to Hawaii, where our ancient ones are. The ones that first heard the land crying and sent a man. His name was also Paikia. And I'm the most recent descendant. And we got tons and tons and tons and tons of right answers this week. But we can only randomly select one. Here you go. Hello, Kristen and Rafer. This is Jacob calling from the happiest city in America, Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm thrilled this week to finally possibly know the answer to movie trivia. I believe it's Whale Rider, an excellent film that's worth everybody else checking out sometime when they have a moment. Thanks for your great show. Keep up the good work. Bye. The happiest city. It actually is Charlottesville, Virginia, the happiest city, according to, I think it's a Harvard study. Really? I know. Who knew? Who knew? Charlottesville. I almost went to UVA for uh, grad school. Wow. I got in, but I didn't go. It's the path not taken for me. I wonder what, if I would have been happier. Wow. Maybe we should all move to Charlottesville for a little while. That would make everything really happy out there. And they'd, they'd be thrilled. Uh, okay. So this week's trivia, we were talking about the film This Is Where I Leave You. Uh, you know, a dysfunctional family comedy. I liked it better than Kristen did. That got us thinking... What's one of the most dysfunctional families we've seen on film? So Kristen and I picked what we think is a winner. Here's a clip. Why do they call you Jackie-O? We went to an Ides of March party, and I went as Jackie Onassis in a pink Chanel suit and a pillbox hat and blood on my dress. Blood? Well, ketchup mostly, and other stuff too, like macaroni, kind of glued on like brains. Yeah, that family screwed up. There's some dysfunction going on there, let me tell you. If you know the name of that movie, give us a call, 5717movies. Or you can always visit us at facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast or at moviedatepodcast.org. Dysfunction.